just how many people are coming through on a monthly basis. Well, um, I get the privilege of bringing the word this morning. I know that excites many of you. <laughs> um, but why don't we do this just so I can kind of lock in a little bit more. Um, can we take maybe just two minutes, get up, and maybe shake the hand of somebody next to you, maybe even more specifically, somebody you don't know. Just a two-minute, three-minute conversation just to kind of break. If you want some water, stretch, but just get to know somebody. Go ahead and take a couple more minutes. Go ahead. Get, just keep on talking. Keep on connecting. This is important. That gives me about two seconds just to lock in and pray a bit, so that's great. No, um, I'm just joking. You know, it's important that we feel connected to one another, you know? It's hard, it, it's, it's easy to get lost in uh, a, a church of this size, relationally. And here at Hilltop, we try to emphasize, we don't do a good job at it all the time, but we try to emphasize and work to uh, building a family and not an organization. So any way that we can help that um, is good, right? It's good to know each other. Let's uh, turn... Uh, to the book of Hebrews, shall we? Thanks for tolerating worship this morning. Um, my in-ears were crazy. I was all over the place. There's, I don't know, it was crazy. So um, sometimes you just got to, you know, lock down and do it because <laughs> Jesus is worthy. Hebrews chapter 12, all right? Verses 1 and 2. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, someone say, therefore, therefore. since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Where does sin cling? Closely. <laughs> and let us run with endurance the race 
that is set before us. Now here, just focus in on this verse. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God, or the right hand of the throne of God. You know, all kidding aside, if you weren't aware, Hebrews chapter 12 falls on the back of Hebrews chapter 11. Um, all right, Christian joke's gone bad, all right? Whatever, get off me. No, um, but I guess I say that because it's important to, when we're, when we're trying to track and understanding Hebrews chapter 12, we can't do that without giving attention to Hebrews chapter 11, right? That's why Hebrews chapter 12 kicks off with therefore. It's like a continued thought, right? And just another chapter. And so in order to kind of lock into what the author is writing about here, we have to not just disregard Hebrews chapter 11, but we have to think about Hebrews chapter 11 also in addition to. And there in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, the writer, the author, talks about the great crowd of witnesses, right? He goes through the list of the patriarchs of the faith, right? Listing people like Abraham and Moses and David and such, right? Talking about their faith. Uh, you know, I think up until recently, in my observation, the, the charismatic church has viewed this particular text um, as a means to almost look at that great crowd of witnesses as a God's cheering squad. <laughs> uh, they're just up there, come on, Bobby, you can run this race. I don't in any way um, inscribe or prescribe to that way of thought or that notion. I-, I believe what the writer is doing or what he's trying to set up for us is not so much that we're being cheered on by a great crowd of witnesses, but that we're looking <laughs> at the great crowd of witnesses. We're, they're not up there with pom-poms and saying, come on, Daryl, you can run this race. I'm looking to their stories, being provoked by their stories, and in being provoked, I am with the same zeal running my race. In other words, it's kind of like this. You know, take David, for example, if you would, right? That's an interesting background. Um, take David, if you would, right? Here's a man who was said to be a a man after God's own heart, right? Pretty cool. I mean, I'd like that to be said about me. Here's a man who was the king of Israel. Uh, You know, he was a baller, you know? Uh, Even so much that he threatened the recent king, Saul, right? There was this tension growing within the king that was before David, right? So he's a bit of a baller. He's a bit of a kind of a... um, Prolific. I don't know if that would be the right word, but he's, he's, a, he's a heavy hitter in the Old Testament, right? But then, here you have David, who's a king, who's said to be a man after God's own heart, but he's also an adulterer. He's also a murderer. I mean, the list goes on of also David's failure. So I can look at both David's strengths and his weaknesses, and I can say, if David can run this race and finish it, Daryl can too. Amen. You understand? So I, I can understand that the great accomplishments that uh, King David did even prior to being king, and I can also look at his failures and say there's hope for me. So I don't think in any way that the great crowd of witnesses are serving as God's cheerleading squad. 
I feel as though I am looking at them intently via the word. I'm looking at their stories. and I'm saying, whoa, whoa, if Moses can do it, a man who is a bit of a, uh, uh, he, he, he had fear, he was intimidated, right? I believe some scholars say he spoke with a, a, a slur or maybe kind of like me, and I, you know, but I'm looking at Moses, I'm saying, you know, a bit of a train wreck, but God used him, he's a deliverer. Man, I can do this, I can run this race. And you know what? It goes all the way from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament to Jesus and joy. To, I'm sorry, to Jesus and beyond to joy. Now, let me explain. The key verse that we're looking into here today is verse 2. Looking to Jesus, right? Where or who are we to look to? Jesus. The founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So we have eyes fixed on the Savior, saying, Oh, Lord, if you endured such brutality, if you endured such um, violent you know, behavior, we can endure. We can look at your race, Lord, and we can run this well as we keep our eyes to you. Now, that's not my message. It's more so just my introduction. I really want to talk about joy. We've already talked a good amount about joy. If you date all the way back to, I think, three Sundays ago, where I talked about, you know, uh, suffering with joy or uh, experiencing various trials with uh, a glad, happy heart. And, and I understand that we kind of, um, we've kind of uh, missed how we do this. Like, I may be perceived as being kind of trite, uh, you know, kind of like shallow, maybe you know, like maybe from those who are listening, like, you don't understand what I'm going through. I, I do sympathize, and in many ways, have my own experiences in my life that have caused great pain. Um, but I kind of want to lay out some things practically for us, to, for us to think different in our pursuit or our pursuing of joy. All right? And we're looking, we're looking to know greater of a man than Jesus to do such. So I'm framing the argument, so to speak, here. So looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now, we're all familiar with the cross, right? A lot of brutal, vicious, like, stuff going on at the cross. Jesus is suffering at the hand. But the author of Hebrews says that, joy, that Jesus, excuse me, endured the cross with joy. How is that humanly possible? Some would maybe think that it is because he was God, you know, and that he just, maybe God just shut off the, the faculties or the feeling of pain. You know, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think that, that um, in his humanity, Jesus suffered um, and, and felt the blows in his body and felt the spears that it, and the nails that were driven into his hands. So I, I, can't, I, I can't really lean towards that um, way of thought. But... But, but nevertheless, it, it becomes interesting that we're to look to Jesus, but we're, looked, we're looking to him in a, a specific way here in the book of Hebrews, aren't we? We're looking to him in, in a means to kind of be provoked or be equipped, I guess, so, for lack of better words, to endure suffering or various trials with joy. I call it suffering well, or, or better yet, suffering in style, <laughs> you know? I don't know if it's humanly possible, but I'd like to think that if the 
The Bible is full of this type of language, that there's something for me to learn, there's something for me to, to, to adhere to and kind of just adapt to in my Christian faith. And so we're, we're, we're also kind of left with thinking, well, what was the joy set before Christ? Have you ever thought about that? I don't know. I've, I've been in a lot of mainly charismatic uh, circles when, um, and I love the charismatic church. I consider myself a, a charismatic loosely uh, with maybe some, um, uh, I don't know, whatever. We won't go there. Uh, <laughs> but um, what was the joy set before Christ? You know, and, and getting back to the circles that I've been in, in kind of the preaching that I've been exposed to, mainly the idea is that we, we ourselves, were the joy set before Christ. Let me just say that that is not true. I'm, I'm really, uh, if, I'm sorry to burst that humanistic, you know, um, selfie generation. Oh, look at me. It's not about you here. It would take a lot more than you for Christ to endure such pain. So what was it? Because if we're looking to the world, let me just say this statement too, um, in order to frame the argument or to frame this talk this morning. But, but this is what is inspiring this message today. I believe we have a kind of crisis in the church today where many Christians, not most, but many, even myself included, are looking to the world to, um, to I don't know what the word would be, but to um, provide or create for us or in us uh, a sense of joy and satisfaction. Now, I'm sure if we were all honest, you could, your mind could, you could go there, you could see, you could connect with places that you would say that that's true. I surely can this morning, and I'm the pastor. You know, you think about it, in such things like wealth, and status, and sex, or materialism, the list goes on, right? You can just fill in the blanks. But if we look to the world as believers to provide for us joy and satisfaction, it will always, friends, end in disappointment. Matter of fact, it will also end in us feeling delusional because we're not, we are not following the path of which Christ has set before us. And so what we're fostering is confused believers who mainly struggle, I think, if I could say this, psychologically mainly, with kind of like a split personality. It's a real crisis in the church. We cannot, as believers, look to the world in any way, through alcohol, through sex, through materialism, through Facebook, through status. We cannot have those things begin to frame what, for us, what satisfies or what brings us joy. For the believer, the only person of which we can find joy in, mark my words, unless you want to live on this side of eternity insane, is living for the kingdom of God, hiding your life in Christ. True joy comes not from this world for the believer. For the believer, joy comes not from things temporal or transient. They may bring immediate uh, satisfaction or, yeah, they may be, bring uh, brief yet uh, immediate satisfaction for the believer, joy, much like the joy that was set before Christ, comes from a future glory that is promised the church. 
And, and we can see this language. I'm going to unpack it a little bit. And hopefully by the grace of God, I do it in a way that everybody can understand. We have to understand that largely the New Testament directs us as its readers and as its learners to start to change our thinking or transform our mind to say this, the world cannot satisfy me. Only Christ can satisfy me. The world cannot bring me joy. That means when I'm going through something hard, when I'm suffering, enduring, doesn't look like me going to the bar. It doesn't look like me going to um, whatever it might be. It looks like me going to Christ because the only person that can help me in this hour is Jesus. Look at the joy set before Christ. I think it's best summarized in John 17, verse 5. You can turn there if you want to just put it on the overhead. Here Jesus says this, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. You get the sense that Christ is saying, I want to be back. <laughs> I, I, I want to get back to what we first had. The joy set before Jesus that caused him to endure such brutality was this. Jesus would be reunited in the glory he shared with the Father before the world existed. Jesus would once again be seated. <laughs> At the right hand of his Father. We know that Jesus, when he walked the earth, was one with the Father, right? He often spoke what the Father told him to speak. He did what the Father told him to do. But here, Jesus would once again be seated or sit at his Father's side. Friends, this is much different than obedience. The obedience of Christ. This was Christ seated in his rightful place as ruler, king, as judge of the heavens and the earth. <laughs> the seat where Christ will judge all of humanity, something of which also his father gave him to do. Look at John 5, 22, in terms of what I would say are kind of categorized as Jesus' second phase of ministry. See, we love Jesus who walked the earth and who is obedient. We love the merciful Jesus. But what about the Jesus who is going to judge the earth? Oh, no. I should have went to the Baptist church down the street to say that. But John 5, 22, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given me, Christ, all judgment. John 5, 27, And he gave him, Christ, authority to execute judgment, because he, Christ, is the Son of Man. Jesus' joy endured the cross because Jesus was never at home in the world. We will never be able to experience Christ-centered, Christ-glorifying joy if we see or have made in any way this home our home. This dates all the way back to the sojourn. We are to live as sojourners. You are but, I am but briefly passing by this moment. 
You won't be able to experience joy. It will be impossible. Your kind of experience with joy, with joy will be much like riding a roller coaster. If you have made a commitment to be or to live at home in this world. What's my point? My point is this. Christians who are right at home in this world are more often than most a miserable bunch. It confused people. Often this misery and confusion is massively accentuated in times of trial. Have you ever noticed, for me, a good kind of barometer, a good way to tell where I am in my walk with Christ is how I respond to hardships, how I respond to arguments. When I go through, it's a real good test of how much Christ-likeness I possess or am pursuing. I can say these things because for the most part, I've lived them. I don't think we need more sozos. I just think we need people coming out of relationship with the world and in relationship with Christ, considering this world nothing, just passing through. Does that mean we just hit cruise? No, we're active. We're missional. In other words... Christians who fall prey to worldliness, Christians who only experience joy when their bank account reads a certain amount, when they're surrounded by enough possessions, when they've accumulated enough distractions to drown out the emptiness, they feel, and all the while calling it joy. For the believer, joy is indispensable. Joy is obtainable, and hear me, For the believer, joy is not conditional. Nor is it the result of circumstances. Why? Because we know this world isn't it for us. Joy exists because our hope isn't built upon the transient and the temporal. But our hope is built upon the eternal. And when you start building your life upon the eternal man, joy becomes easy. The one thing I'll have to give my mom when she faced cancer is the joy that she possessed as she was going through chemo because she had this train of thought that if the worst situation happens, that she passes, that she will gain something tremendously. You know, most of us will sit back and we'll grieve for those who have gone to the other side, so to speak, who have, we have lost and died. But if they're a believer, listen, they're not grieving at all. They're rejoicing. They're very much content, very much happy. And when we begin to live with eyes focused on Christ, focused on heaven, the things of this world become so dim. They lose their hold on us. And we're almost excited in times of trial, even maybe, God forbid, on our deathbeds even, that we can have joy because we know that we're going to pass on and, and sit with Christ. <laughs> Do you understand that's what the Bible says? We will be seated with Him? Yeah. God! <laughs> yeah. Like, it's remarkable. Yeah. 
So not only do we have this great promise of, of, of going to heaven, for lack of better words, but we're going to be seated with Christ in heavenly places. Matter of fact, the Word of God says we already are. I don't know what that looks like. It's a great mystery. But you know what? It fuels me not to get caught up in the temporal, in the transient. It fuels my joy. <laughs> it does. And it should fuel yours. This isn't it for us, friends. Paul says it best in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So we do not lose heart. What? We do not lose heart. Though our outer self. Now he's talking about death. So we don't lose heart in death. <sighs> God, please help me not lose heart while I'm on my deathbed. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction. A.K.A. the things you are experiencing now. The trouble, the kickback, the suffering, the trials. They are momentary. Is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Beyond comparison. How many of you, when you think about heaven, actually can... Think about it in terms of being beyond anything that you could ever imagine. You, you can hear a penny drop in this place because most of us don't, right? We're suddenly like, what do I think about when I think? Do I even think about heaven? Do I think about eternity? But, but this is what Paul is saying. In light of affliction, in light of wasting away, we are being prepared for eternity. A glory beyond all comparison. We look not to things that are seen. But to things that are unseen. Who does that? I want to do that. Do you want to do that? I want to do that. I really, I really want to come out of love with this world. I'm sorry, I'm yelling. I, I, I may be the only one getting jacked off this passage. But... <laughs> I'm fine with that. As we look, not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. I love that word, transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Those, though Paul's frame is wasting outwardly, he did not lose heart, right? Paul endured many afflictions. We know the stories, right? M many stories of the affliction Paul suffered. But he, he did it in style. <laughs> he suffered with joy. I, wa I want to suffer. I don't want to suffer, but if I have to suffer, <laughs> I want a smile on my face. Here's Paul again in Romans chapter 8, 18. Talking to you again about the present times and the future glory. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul, in comparing his present suffering with the glory that is to be revealed to us, says that there is no comparison. Do you believe that today? In, in, in light of, what is it, tomorrow the new iPhone comes out? <sighs> no, it's not coming out. Is, is it? 
It's a myth. That's straight from the girl who works there. You heard it first at Hilltop Church. Listen, I don't care how cool the new iPhone will be. No matter what new technology, no matter what new way to get rich, overnight scheme exists, no matter what new movie Hollywood produces, more than any new way to pervert sex, to make it less sacred and more perverted, more than uh, most places you can escape in the name of rest, more than any politician and more than wealth, you could ever accumulate in this life. Heaven is more precious and to be desired than all of these. My fear is though that we don't live like that. We're so easily amused and taken by lower, lesser things as believers. And we have before us this extraordinary place of which Jesus now is preparing for us. That, as Paul said, will be beyond our wildest dreams. So in light of that, don't get caught up with the temporal. Don't get caught up with things that are rusting away and dying away. Set your affection, set your eyes on things above and things that are eternal. And let your joy be so rich, not because of the things you can see, but the things you cannot see. You see, true joy, true satisfaction comes when the world has nothing to offer in light of the surpassing glory in the age to come. Heaven is our home. We are but passing through again sojourners whom aren't home in this world. Look at Philippians, one more text, and then we'll. Philippians chapter 3, verse 11. Not that I have already obtained this. Actually, we're going to read um, verses 12 through 21. Not that I have already obtained this, but I aim already. But I, not that I already obtained this or that I'm already perfect in this, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward To what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal it. That you also, it's to you also, excuse me. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on the, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And the, they glory in the shame, in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And for it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul explains how he, above anyone, has the right to place confidence in his flesh, given all that he has achieved in his life. But, but Paul doesn't use this laundry list of credentials as a reason to place confidence in himself. Paul considers them right here in this text to be worthless, to be lost in light of knowing Christ. He considers them to be rubbish in order, in order to gain Christ, not the world. Verse 10, Paul throws the word resurrection out there, doesn't he? So now he's tying the afterlife, right, into the equation. Now follow me. In verse 10, he says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, become like, becoming like him in his death. So now Paul attaches all he has achieved, considering all that he has done in his credentials as worthless and rubbish, garbage, that by any means possible, listen to me, he would obtain the resurrection of the dead. How do we get there from there? By any means possible. 3.11. I, this is Paul, do these things so that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul makes it very clear that he has not obtained this yet. But he strives. He presses forward. He presses on. He's straining. Oh, that we would be like Paul. That we would heed his words when he says, follow my example. Friends, we got to follow Paul's example. Listen, I don't know how educated you are here this morning, how wealthy you are, how good you are at your job, or how bad you are at your job. I don't, I don't know what kind of builds your confidence today. I'm sure there's something, right? But I, I want to just encourage us this morning in this. The way we as believers are going to find True satisfaction and joy is in this. If we don't build our life upon finding joy and satisfaction in this world, and we look, we, we, we look, we look to be perfected, we peel our eyes, the eyes of our heart open, and we say, Christ, what can we see of surpassing value in eternity, what do we need to see where the things that we can't see become indispensable to us? 
where it becomes so visible and it causes this joy to erupt within us that we can't be easily distracted by the new iPhone. (laughs) That we can't be easily or overly confident in success and status and wealth. What is it, Christ, that we need to see about heaven that is so glorious that we don't see? In short, help us to see, God, by your grace, things that are unseen. I don't know why God chooses to hide things like this from us. But I know we have this glorious truth that sits before us, man. And just if we peer into this word of truth, man, I know that without a shadow of a doubt, we'll be able to see the glory that awaits us. Bow your head in your hearts this morning. Father, give us eyes.